So last week, Corey and the girls and I had a week of vacation away, and it was all over the map. We left from Bellingham, we went all the way to Portland, and then to the Puyallup area to help my sister paint her house, so she welcomed a new baby, and then all the way up to Whistler and back. All that to say, we drove a lot, and our cars are the just outdated enough to where we don't have the MP3 jack in our stereo, so it made me really appreciate iTunes playlists, you know what I'm talking about? Like different playlists, you throw albums in there and songs together, and it made me think of back in the day, if anyone remembers the old, uh, the mixed tape, remember the mixed tape? Sometimes if you liked a girl, you make the mixed tape kind of thing of favorite songs, because your songs that are in your playlist or on your mixed tape really reveal a lot about yourself, and I, I happen to have, you know, a playlist in my iTunes for about every kind of mood, I have a skiing mix and a workout mix and a a house mix. If you come over, oftentimes you'll get the Chris house mix. And then I've got, you know, a classical mix and a, a mix that I read to, but that's different than the mix that I write to. And I may or may not even have a business time mix, a little romantic music in there. But um, why so many mixes on the iTunes playlist? Because life is dynamic, right? And moods change. And as circumstances change, you need different accompaniment, different background music. But so often, I think, at least in the Western Christian world, um, there seems to be very few playlists when you walk into church. There's the playlist of happy, happy, joy, joy, and victory, or there's sometimes the playlist of argumentative and truth without any kind of grace. But Christianity as a faith absolutely has a wonderful set of playlists, and it's called the Psalms. The Psalms have give voice to almost every emotion in the human life. Walter Brueggemann reflects upon the Psalms as they intersect our lives, and I find his reflections very helpful. He talks about three very general stations in life. He says, sometimes people are securely oriented. So that's one way of being in life. And so when you're securely oriented and someone asks you to, hey, how's it going today? If you're securely oriented, you're going to say, I'm fine. Uh, or you might answer like, uh, I'm living the life. Uh, well, what's going on in your life? Well, work's fine. Uh, the kids are going to school. Everything's great. Everything's okay. Everything's fine, right? Uh, then it, the other stage of life is painfully disoriented. So that's when a runaway truck that you don't see runs into your securely oriented life. It's the unexpected chronic illness. It's the loss of a loved one uh, in your life. It's the loss of a job that you really liked. If someone asks you how you are when you are painfully disoriented, you may give a forced smile and a blank stare. You might break out in tears. You might just be emotionally numb. The third stage, and this is not linear at all, so we have securely oriented, painfully disoriented. The third one is surprisingly reoriented. You don't know how, but suddenly you wake up and you realize your life isn't at all like it was, but it's okay. And it's actually maybe better than it was. You find out that you're alive in a way you never thought possible. Your career, that career you were banking on, that you trained for, that you went to school for, is gone. But a new opportunity has opened up that you never thought possible, and it's exciting and new. The loss of the loved one still stings and will for the rest of your life, but you found that you've grown in a depth of love for someone else that you never knew possible. 
You have no idea how you came back to life except that God must be crazy in love with you and his unpredictable love is just showering on you. Securely oriented, your life is an REI t-shirt. Life is good with the dog and everything like that, right? In fact, securely oriented life is kind of boring. But that's the American dream, isn't it? Be comfortable. Have just enough of everything so you never need anything. That's kind of what we're all shooting for. It's not necessarily the Christian life. but uh, In the security of the oriented life, it's easy to see things as black and white. So a lot of times when everything's going fine, we like the Proverbs. Because you get duped into believing that, hey, if I just do the right stuff, my life will never have any problems. Uh, Psalm 37 is actually a psalm that fits really well with a securely oriented life. We read that one two weeks ago. I'm going to skip to the third one now. Surprisingly reoriented. This is the stuff testimonies are made of. We love this kind of stuff at church. Tell me again how we will overcome any obstacle. Tell me again how life was so bad, but then God rescued me. And last week, last week, Elliot preached on Psalm 46, a psalm of confidence, of God rescuing, of God being there, of God being our rock. That is a surprisingly or reoriented psalm. We need to hear that over and over again. But, what about the in-between time? What about when real life happens? What about a playlist for the painfully disoriented? Anyone who is going through a valley, who feels painfully disoriented, will tell you, I'm not ready to come to church and hear rah-rah chants all the time. I, I just can't receive it right now. Our culture, by the way, makes it very difficult to talk in a healthy way about pain. And I think that that culture is kind of seeped into the church. We discussed this in, in my Bible study a couple weeks ago. What are some of the experiences we've had as individuals in this Bible study uh, with pain and the church? And we came up with at least five things. One is that there's a lie out there in some church traditions that if you're a faithful Christian, you're not going to have very many problems. Okay? That's called Christian science. Go talk to Tom Cruise if you think that that's the way it is. Because that is not reality. That's not, that's not real life and that's not the Christian faith. Bad things do happen to good people. Remember Jesus, he got crucified. Uh, second thing is that there's this issue of pride that I think we deal with on, on different levels. So one is, um, I'm not supposed to feel this way. So we don't want to talk about it. Uh, the, other thing, the other way that that works is, I should be able to get over this. You know, something bad's going on in your life, maybe it's depression, maybe it's grief or loss, and you just feel like, I, I, I've been walking with Christian for 30 years, and I ought to be able to get through this. And it's frustrating, it's because that little animal of pride comes up, it doesn't, it doesn't free us up to talk about our pain with other people at church. For those with chronic hardships like depression, or ongoing physical disability, there's actually a feeling of, of being contagious. You know, you, you start to feel like a burden on other people and like you're going to rub off in, a, in some bad way against them. This one was interesting. I dubbed it the first world syndrome. I think, and rightfully so, here in Bellingham, you know, in the Western world, we're, we're, we're so used to being reminded in the church, you know, even poor, a poor person in Bellingham is wealthy compared to the rest of the world. 
true. Uh, but, But the way that that plays out then is like, gosh, I shouldn't feel so bad about my grandfather dying when, you know, across the world there's somebody watching their child die in front of them. Or, you know, I shouldn't feel so bad about losing my job when, you know, there's so many other people who have never had a job. Right? And so it, it plays out in this way where we don't give ourselves permission to grieve. I just want to say grief is relative. And, and it's okay. It's natural to grieve these things that happen in your life too. And finally, if we're honest, we don't really want people to show their weakness. Because true depression, serious illness... Serious mental illness, a chronic pain, all of these things can't be fixed. And, you know, all of us in the church, we're pretty good at being compassionate for a few days or a few weeks. Special people, maybe a few months. But you get around a person who is chronically in pain or depressed, and it starts to make you feel what? Useless. And we live in a culture that judges us on our productivity Right, and when I start to make you feel worthless and useless, oh man, it starts to mess with your head and your identity and your value, and it does the same thing to me. And I'm a caregiver. Right? We hate to feel weak. The problem is, friends, if we are afraid to feel weak, we're afraid to be really human. Because part of being a human being is to be vulnerable. It's to get older. It's to be able to get sick. It's to be able to love and therefore to to lose things. Just as part of being human is being creative, you know, being resourceful. Uh, All of these great things about humanity are also balanced with our weakness. And we have to embrace both of those things to be fully alive. That's why I'm thankful for the particular playlist, if you will, in the Psalms, the Psalms of Lament. These are psalms that deal with the nitty-gritty hard times in life, like Psalm 13 that we're going to look at this evening. You know, just a few minutes ago, Ian brought us a psalm, uh, Psalm 139, from King David. Isn't that a wonderful psalm? It might have been a memory verse, verse for you at some point along the road. It talks about how God, you know, he sees us in our mother's wombs, knit us together. It makes you feel... I don't know, just really special. Every one of us is thought up by God and brought to life by God. And then it goes on to talk about how there is nowhere on earth, under the earth, in heaven, nowhere where God's presence isn't with you. I love that the same man, David, the king, the warrior, the musician, the saint, and the sinner, that same man also wrote Psalm 13. And here's how it goes. Would you stand with me, please? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my own soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Look at me! Answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I'm shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. 
My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Thank you, Father, for including this in your holy scriptures. I pray, Lord, that as you speak to us, you would, you would give us permission to feel these things. If your servant King David, a man after your own heart, can feel this way, I'm thankful that you allow us permission to feel this way. And at the same time, remind us of your abundant faithfulness, even when we can't feel it, even when we resist it, even when circumstances might suggest otherwise. Would you reach out and touch each of us, Lord, as in our own circumstance, in our own suffering, and remind us of your faithfulness, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the last time I preached on a psalm, uh, two weeks ago, it was Psalm 37, which I was commenting is a, just a nightmare to outline. I love Psalm 13. It's really a piece of cake. It's six verses that are divided into doublets. So you've got one doublet, verses one and two, verses three and four are a second section, and five and six are a third section. And because it naturally outlines itself, I'm just going to follow that outline. Why change a good thing, right? So the first thing that jumps out to us in those first two verses is this phrase, How long? How long, O oh Lord? Four times in two verses, David expresses himself, his, his lament with this, how long? It's not some minor slump in David's life, you know? It's not like, oh, I had a bad day at work, you know, so God, where are you? It's not like, oh gosh, I'm about to go cost, uh, shopping at the Bellingham Costco again. Lord, where are you? It, it's, it, it's like whatever David is feeling, whatever he's going through here, it's been going on a long time. At least it feels like a long time. We don't know exactly what the historical circumstances are, but we kind of have a clue as to how deep uh, a depth David is in. Because traditionally, uh, scholars have believed that Psalms 12 and 13 go together. And if you look at Psalm 12, Psalm 12 is a, is a lament psalm as well. And as David... Uh, complaining or crying out to God about how people have betrayed him, how he can't find anyone good in the land. And, and it's as if he's alone. And you know how lonely it can be when a good friend, there's a rift between you and someone else, and you just feel alone from people. That, that's a bad place to be. But Psalm 13 takes it a step deeper. And in Psalm 13, David actually cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? See, I think a person of faith in Jesus, we can endure a lot. Like, it hurts bad when people reject us or when there's rift in human relationships. But it's like you can endure a lot when you've got Jesus by your side. But when you feel like God has abandoned you, well, that's a pain at a whole nother level. And that's where David is at in Psalm 13. He feels like God himself has, has abandoned him. He doesn't sense God's presence anymore. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? One of the most famous stories of, um, of people enduring 
this feeling of God abandoning them is St. John of the Cross. Uh, born in Spain in 1542, St. John was a Carmelite priest. And he uh, was actually a contemporary with uh, Teresa of Avila, who wrote Interior Castle and some other great works. He was, he was a little bit younger than her, and, uh, but he was also an inner traveler, they call it. He had great mystical experiences with Jesus, visions, very close with the Lord. And one of the things that St. That John felt called to do was reform the Carmelite order. And so he tried to do that in monasteries, um, helping people get closer to Jesus. Well... Of course, when you reform a system, an old system, people don't like that. And so these friars resisted St. John, and they actually, this is so mind-boggling. So these friars capture this priest, St. John of the Cross, and they, they imprison him in a little cell. It used to be a latrine. It was 10 feet by 6 feet, and so short, he couldn't stand up inside of it. And for a year... At mealtimes, they would drag him out in front of the other friars while they're eating, wouldn't give him any food, uh, and they would torture him and call him to recant his reforms. He said, I cannot recant these reforms, so they would whip him in front of these people. And then they would put him back in the cell. In the summertime, it was sweltering hot and stinky. In the wintertime, he nearly froze to death a few times, until finally he escaped a year later. Having felt in his heart, abandoned in that cell. And he wrote one of the most deep spiritual works we have. It's the classic, The Dark Night of the Soul. Now, that is a priest who is close with Jesus, you know, just had these wonderful experiences with him, reforming Jesus' church, and... This happens to him by supposed men of God? Where is God in all of that? You know, I think few of us can probably relate, uh, relate directly. Like if you guys, I guess, captured me and stuck me in that closet and made it smell like a latrine. I don't know. Could you imagine something like that happening in the United States or at least in, in this community? I can't imagine that. But still, don't we sometimes, if we're honest... Sometimes, don't we get surprised when really bad things happen to us? It's like, come on, I'm a Christian. I, I serve at church. I helped set up the, put the Bibles in the pews today, or I led worship today, or I preached the sermon today. And why is all this happening to me, right? Don't we sometimes feel that way? It, almost this sense of, okay, God, I know I'm serving you because, you know, your God and everything, but really, doesn't this like somehow get points with you? Aren't I entitled to a little bit better life than everybody else, right? I think that's why Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never mixed words. He, he never made it sound like, you know what, your life is going to be a bed of roses if you follow me. He always said things like, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. You've got to die to yourself if you're going to follow me. So this isn't some kind of like secret thing that happens to you in a Christian. Like we say, oh, it's going to be great. Oh, by the way, you're going to suffer. Suffering was always in the front lines of what Jesus was, was talking about. We're not immune to the troubles of the world. You know, but there's other ways that we, we experience this, this loss of relationship with God. Sometimes we experience it through depression. Clinical depression is a serious, serious reality that affects many 
here and many in our lives. Uh, I know tons of friends and colleagues who suffer from clinical depression. And those of you that know this, you don't just snap out of it one day. You don't say, oh, just get over it. Just get motivated. And for those of you that wrestle with this or know people who wrestle with it, you can identify with David here in Psalm 13 that says, How long, O Lord? How long? And then there's grief, of course, which we often associate with the loss of loved ones, which that is true, but grief is really the loss of expectations. You know? It's the life that never was that we were hoping for. It's the loss of, uh, you know, uh, gosh, I went to school all this time and I can't even get a job in my own field. The loss of loved ones, loss of expectations. And what do we do with grief in our culture? We try and rush it. We try and get over it really quickly without recognizing the reality that grief, if not dealt with, it will bear its ugly head six months, nine months, 12 months later. And then by then you're wondering, I wonder why I feel so cold and distant. Like I got over that grief in my mind like months ago. What what are these feelings bubbling up? And then we, we try and figure it out. We go to counselors. It's because we don't mourn well. We don't deal well. We don't That's why we need Psalms of Lament to kind of help us get words to this stuff. It takes time. Relationships can be the cause of the painfully disoriented life. Besides uh, actual loss uh, through death of loved ones, there's the pain of divorce, there's unruly teenagers, there's defiant two-year-olds and three-year-olds and six-year-olds and um, all that stuff. There's the arrival of new children, which can come, you know, you think, oh, that's great, yay, new kid. It's chaos. Uh, I love Jim Gaffigan's uh, uh, skit on this. He, he, he talks about going from three kids to four kids. He goes, this is what it's like. It's like imagine you're drowning in a pool and someone hands you a baby. You know, it's, it's completely overwhelming, uh, the, the addition of people to the family. The circumstances that bring on the painfully disoriented life are many and more than I just mentioned but they can all lead to the spiritual crisis of, God, where are you? Why have you hidden your face from me? Have you abandoned me at my greatest hour? And you feel like when all those well-meaning Christian friends come and they give you the poster of Footprints in the Sand, it's like, just take that Footprints in the Sand poster and throw it in the ocean, right? You know, and it seems to me at that crossroads that we have a choice. We really do. And, and it's a crisis of faith every time. It's the crisis of, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to stuff these feelings and kind of grin and bear it and basically kind of go off without God. And you might even still show up at church and go to your Bible study and all that, but you're kind of just a wraith, you know, like a phantom, kind of just doing the routine. And you realize, you know, all of a sudden I, I'm not really walking with God anymore. And of course, the other, the other way to deal with this is to dig your heels in, to scratch and claw and um, to reach out to God. I just thought of this as I was preaching that, um, how many years ago was this? Probably 2003. And I was really in a funk, just really feeling distant from God doing all the right stuff. I was an associate pastor. I was, uh, you know, had, before we had kids, I spent lots of time in prayer and thought I was being a good husband. There's all this stuff. And I just not feeling the presence of God weeks and weeks showing up in prayer, reading my Bible, just feeling dry. 
And I had a dream. This, this is weird, I know. It's serious. And I had a dream that I was Jacob. And I was wrestling with God. And I felt in this dream, I felt my hip go out of place like in the story. And it hurt. Like, actually, I remember the pain. And, uh, and, and I remember God. He was kind of like... Um, <laughs> This is funny. He's kind of like King Trident, the cartoon guy on, on uh, Little Mermaid, like with the big beard. And he had like this, this broad chest and kind of tan. He was a good-looking good God. And, I, uh, and I'm there with my hip, and he's starting to walk away. And I just, I just lunge on that good leg, and I, I just had a handful of breast. Like his chest, like his, his tanned bronze skin. I remember this. It's like coming through my fingers. And he's like, what do you want? And I said, I just want to, to want you again. I want, and he just laughed. I said, what is so funny? He goes, look at where you are. There I am on the chest of God, clinging tighter than I'd ever clung before, feeling distant. This is exactly what David is doing here. He takes the transition now. He's crying out to God, how long are you going to hide from me? And then... We start that second doublet, verses 3 and 4. And what does he say? The New American Standard translates it as, Consider and answer me, O Lord. Isn't that nice? In Hebrew, it's literally, Look at me! In an imperative. Face me! Have you ever just said that to God before? Maybe if you've argued with a lover, <laughs> don't walk away from me. I want to finish this right now. Like, don't slam the door in my face. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and David just feels so abandoned. And instead of, instead of saying, fine, God, I'm going to do my own thing, he just cries out in desperation, look at me, answer me, oh, Yahweh, my God. Isn't that raw? I love that. There's no sense here of David trying to, to say the right words. There's no sense here of David saying, you know, I'm writing a psalm, and in thousands of years, the Chai church is going to use this as part of their liturgy. Like, I don't think he cares about any of that stuff. He's just writing his guts out. Look at me. Answer me. And you know, David isn't just praying or crying out to a generic God or the idea of a God. Um, in our world, there's lots of options besides God. And in David's world, same thing. He's surrounded by pagan nations, tons of different idols to choose from. And David, very specifically here in, in the Hebrew text, cries out, face me, answer me, Yahweh my God. Not just God, not just the generic term. He says, Yahweh, my God. Yahweh, the personal name of the creator of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who brought Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, the God who chose the little shepherd boy who is the youngest of all of his brothers, the God who's with David when he slew Goliath, the Yahweh who anointed God king and protected him with crazy Saul's throwing spears at him and Oh, the, the same God, the same God who forgave him of his sin, put him in his place. That's the God that David cries out to. And maybe that's why his feeling of abandonment is all the more painful. Because he, he knew God, he had a relationship with him. Do you have that kind of relationship with God? 
when things are going bad in your life, do you seek the face of God? Like, I'm th- think of your prayers. Do you seek the face of God? Or do you seek the solution to your problem? Because I've got to confess, so many times I'm tempted to just pray, God, get me out of this jam. Here, I've got the idea. Here's how you fix it, Lord. Just provide this thing or this opportunity. Instead of saying, God, I just, I need you. I need your presence. Because I think, I think what God, like, in us, with the Spirit in us, we can overcome a lot more. And half the time we're asking for stuff that's going to dig us in deeper holes. Right? So think about that. Like, some of you are in the valley right now. We'll get to that in a minute. But some of you are in that securely oriented state of, state of life right now. Life's good. Got the t-shirt from REI. This is the time, you guys, if you're cruising right now, this, this is the time to invest in the spiritual bank account. So that later on when the world goes upside down on you, you have something to draw from. So I encourage you uh, to draw close to God before you get desperate for it. So in the third section, uh, verses 5 and 6, they take on a different tone from the first two. In the first section, we hear David's complaint. In the second section, we hear David's prayer, his, his desperate cry out, Face me, answer me, God, I, I, I need your presence. But in the third, we hear his resolve. It's as if by taking the time to pray to God, David reminded himself of who God is, and what God has done in his life up to this point. And based on God's track record of the past, David is going to resolve how he's moving forward in the future. He writes, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. Say that. He has dealt bountifully with me. Now I The nerd in me says that there's something very interesting about that statement. He has dealt bountifully with me. That's because in Hebrew, it is in the perfect tense, which means that it has already happened. It's already been completed. And the extra nerdy thing is that word bountifully in Hebrew actually connotes a couple different meanings. It means ripe, like a piece of fruit that's all ready to pick. It means weaned, like a child who's already satisfied and is now... able to be on its own. It means reared up. Okay, it means completed. You have dealt bountifully with me. I am full. I am abundant. And yet, in all of that statement, just a few verses earlier, it's the same David who's saying, where are you? How long will you hide your face forever? here lies the power of the Psalms and poetry and art in general. They have the power to evoke a vision of what can be, of what actually is, even though it's elusive in the present. Walter Brueggemann argues that that is the reason that totalitarian dictatorships, even when they control the military and the economy, what else do they want to control? The artists. The poets are dangerous to the dictator. The artists are dangerous to the dictator. And damn it, the pastors are too. Because 
People with words and with mediums like the canvas and people that can evoke vision of what is maybe not now, but what can be, that's dangerous to the one who wants to control you, who wants to keep you oppressed, right? And that's exactly what the Psalms can do here. David is in true mourning. He, there's no doubt he's not, he's not faking the cheesy Christian smile, coming to church, everything's fine. No, he's crying out to God, how long will you hide your face from me? He feels truly abandoned but he's choosing to believe that because god has rescued him before he's going to rescue him again so he's choosing to trust to have faith in god and that's that's really the tension that we're called to live in not an extreme of despair and not an extreme of rah-rah joyful all the time even when i'm not we're called to live by faith hope and love we are invited into a hopeful authenticity. So what I mean by that is that uh, we're invited to be real, authentic with where we're at, with hope that it's not always going to be that way. In verse 5, David writes, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I think, as so often happens in Scripture, David wrote those words... And they're better than he knew that they actually were. The Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua'ah. Hundreds of years later, hundreds of years after David wrote this psalm, in the town of Bethlehem was born salvation to a young couple, Mary and Joseph, who of course would name their child Yeshua. God saves. We know him as Jesus. The one who, even though we don't feel the closeness of God, we remember became flesh and dwelt among us and healed our sickness and walked with outsiders. And he walked with the the dignitaries and, and insiders too. The one who spoke like none before him or after him and yet followed up on everything he said on the cross. He's the one who has dealt bountifully with us. He's the one we can trust. And I invite you to trust him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I'm reminded that you yourself are one acquainted with pain, with rejection. You know what it is to be alone, to even feel distant from God. I am so thankful that you not only died to rescue us, but you first became flesh. That you experienced what it is to be human. What it is to know tiredness and and joy and pain. what it is to taste death. And we thank you that you rose and defeated death. And I pray, Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you, that you are taking us with you, that through faith we might have not only forgiveness of sin, but also life everlasting. 
Lord, comfort the afflicted today. Lord, for those who are surprisingly reoriented, help us to tell good stories, to give you the glory and praise. And for those who are cruising secure, Lord, help us to invest, to seek you out, to draw close to you. In Jesus' name.